You're listening to the Twisted Sisters podcast with Allie, a fiery realtor queen, and Samantha, a gypsy wandering her way through life while navigating being a rock star woman with ADHD. Both are former teen moms of two who have faced challenging adversities. They're here to break stereotypes, get real with you about the messiness of life, and remind you that we're all just a little twisted. Hello, and you are listening to the Twisted Sisters podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Samantha Mello. And Allie Engren. We have a very, very special guest on today. Um, He is a thought leader, a speaker, an author, a men's retreat facilitator, a spiritual teacher, a psychedelic guide, a hippie cowboy, and somebody (laughs) I I refer to as a friend now, which I'm really excited about. All of those are true. Yeah, yes. I am so excited to have you on. He, This is Sam Gibbs Morris, everybody. Um, this guy is so freaking cool. He's just so cool. <laughs> Thank you. And he's got just the wildest story full of like, oh my gosh, I twists and turns and ups and downs in real life, but with victory and persistence and just joy and healing. And it's been so cool to get to learn or just – get to know you and to learn how you've gotten to where you are today. And um, I would say from what I've learned about you, who you are today and who you were even six years ago are very different people. Six months ago. Six months ago, (laughs) right? We're always changing. So um, I came across you scrolling on TikTok, actually. Is what it oh, was. Nice. And I came across one of your videos and um, I said, this man looks very intriguing. The story you were talking about, oh, it was actually your interview that you did on another podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it was a friend of yours and um, I can't remember the name of the podcast right now. Within, going Within. Going Within, yeah. And yeah. Um, I sat and watched that podcast in like tears and just like, holy crap, this is amazing. And I cold messaged you and said, like, you have to come on. I need to meet you. Yes. Yeah. And you agree. Here we are. Yeah. Couple weeks later. Getting twisted <laughs> thank with you. the Twisted Sisters. Yeah. Let's do it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for reaching out. And um, thank you for the friendship, too. It's been, um, it's been really great to get to know you as well. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. So can and you? Emily, I'm looking forward to meeting you. You as well. I'm coming in here like, all right, let's. He- I'm so excited to hear your story. I love. He does like the plant medicine. Like I, I just want to listen to you talk this whole time. Uh-oh. I've watched your videos and you seem amazing. So I'm excited. When Thank we, you so much. yeah, when we set up the Zoom, I'm like telling him, I'm like, well, I'm telling him about you, and then I'm telling her about you, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> like this we're in on, between. We're on a blind date. <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, we um, we met uh, for the first time. I was like, "Well, I feel like your name is Sam Morris, and my name is Sam Mello, and that's pretty cool, right there." So, yeah. Um, but it was really cool to hear. I didn't know about all the other things that you were into, and actually, I didn't even really know the psychedelic side of it either as much until you started to share that with me. And so I got really excited too, because we had just done a podcast on good girl conditioning. 
And mm. I said in the podcast, I would love to have a male come on who specializes in the masculine energy and everything on that end of it and just hear, um, just speak to our male listeners and our female listeners too about um, understanding each other better and understanding yeah. that within ourselves too. So, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I manifested think you. <laughs> Here we are. Ta-da. Boom. That's how um, it is. That's how it works. Um, yeah, I think that I love that because I think that um, I don't think I know that, that that understanding is what fuels everything. You know, we we often like we in relationship, especially I mean, relationship is you can do all the work you want, all of it. And you get in a relationship and you're going to be like, oh, there's more. Yeah. And so with that, knowing that um, coming in with an understanding of each other. And the, you know, the, you can say the traumas, the, the work, the wounds, all that stuff, but to really understand on a human level that we're both here because we choose to be here. And, um, it's not about attacking or, uh, getting in a, like a trauma competition. I feel like a lot of trouble couples will get into like, my trauma is bigger than your trauma. My trauma is bigger than your trauma and go down that road. And it just doesn't end with, there's no understanding there. It's yeah. simply like, it's like a trauma pissing contest and it just doesn't work. No, it just creates resentment. Yeah, resentment and, and it just blocks all connection. Well, and it's, I can't understand you because of your trauma. You can't understand me because of my trauma and we're not getting anywhere. So no. we're just, yeah, mm -hmm. going back. And but forth. really, and it, yeah, and you, that, and then on the other side of it is like all the other person wants is please understand me because of my trauma. Exactly. So it's like this, like, what, like you're, you're going after the same thing, but totally missing the mark because of inability to understand or, or no compassion. Yeah. And it's, it's really unhealed stuff. It's not toxic. It's not destructive. It's just. It's unhealed versions of us that are coming out, which happens in relationships. These, these, uh, you know, early childhood versions of ourselves. These, I feel like teenage versions of ourselves is what really shows up in relationships because teenagers is when we actually start getting into relationships. So like all those yeah. things we picked up from, you know, zero to seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 are now showing up in consciousness and being like, okay, give me evidence that I am broken. Give me evidence that this is true. And then we, so we start interacting in high school with, you know, like dances and it's the first time we really start interacting with the opposite sex. And so in that period, there's so much that comes up that we don't understand that we can't get our head around. Um, there's rejection in there. There's um, feelings of not enough, feelings of too much. Yeah. Comparison hundred percent. And so that teenage years, I feel like when we talk about inner child work, it, the teenage years kind of get lost. Because it's like we do all this work on like, you know, toddler or zero to 10 years old. But then it's like we skip right to the 20s and we're like, well, what happened then? Like, what about that? Like the formative years when we're like actually online for the first time? It makes so much sense because, I mean, when you're a teenager, that's the first time you really feel like you're actually in love. That's the first time you experience mm -hmm. heartbreak. That's the first time. And I, I, I just had a conversation with somebody about teenagers and understanding teenagers that you tell them that they're not in love, but they really are feeling love. They feel mm -hmm. with everything in their being that they're in love. And if you don't remember that, like that's what you think. That's all you know. And it's like, how can you not have traumatic events as a teenager? Totally. <laughs> Just even looking at your parent. I mean, that's the first time you're like, you maybe aren't like God. 
Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not agreeing with what you're saying. And I have my own valid opinions on this subject too, and take right. me seriously. And yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this, it's so much going on in that period. Yeah. I have three of them in my household right now. It's, it's fun. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they all love you unconditionally. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you, can you just kind of get into how you started your journey and, and where, um, where you decided to start learning about these things and, and where your passion really came from men in helping um, men, especially, I would say, um, in their masculine energy, understanding healing, understanding themselves mm-hmm. and into psychedelics as well. Yeah. Um, where, where the real shift for me that ended up um, where I am now began in 2012. Um, I had, I, w- I was at the end of a 15 year run with, addiction of, you know, 20 plus times in jail, six or seven rehabs, multiple hospital stays, broken relationships, broken careers, all the things. And I moved out to California um, because it was really the only place that I had to go was a room at my sister's house. And in there, I got into personal training. And um, that was kind of the exit of, you know, quote unquote, the matrix and corporate world. And um, for a couple of years, I had a, a personal training business out there. And I noticed in about 2016, 2017 was when I noticed that um, it's kind of, it felt common limiting. Like I'm only helping guys with fitness and nutrition. And, at the, and the thing about this is at the end of that personal training career, um, I noticed that um, out of 20 clients, I probably had 19 that were guys. And this was like a repeating pattern. So it wasn't that I was seeking out. Um, only working with men. It just so happened that that was what was happening. And that's been kind of a theme for the entire journey is um, not really seeking out much, but honoring what is happening and what's showing up in front of me. And so as I shifted out of uh, being a personal trainer, I moved into um, helping guys that were newly sober. So not not so much like the ones that are still drinking that really need to go to rehab or, or need to go to AA, but the guys that are you know, maybe 90 days sober that are having trouble recalibrating their life without alcohol. Um, and part of that was because I noticed as I would come out of rehab six times that there was no real landing gear. There was nowhere to go. It was like you're in this protected environment, whether that's rehab or sober living, and you come back to your life and, you know, life still going to life. But yet I have this way different experience of it. And it often it's really hard to kind of match those two things up is how does this new version of me show up as a father, as a brother, as a wife or a husband, as a brother, like all these things. And so I would start helping guys with that. And then I noticed that most of the stuff that guys were working with um, that was blocking them was this like this anxiety, a lot of really, really high anxiety. And, and then uh, so I started working with guys on helping them man- manage anxiety through meditation, breath work, exercise was part of it. Um, and from there, I noticed that um, guys were just struggling with this story of I'm not enough. That's what the anxiety was rooted in. So unworthiness, shame, all this stuff. And so um, from there, I said, you know, like as I was kind of evolving through this process, it was um, a kind of an opening, like like literally like a flower opening, like, oh, my God, there's more, there's more, there's more. It's going deeper. It's going deeper. And then I recognized that all these to get to where I am now, like that this anxiety, this not enough stuff. This shows up like guys can overachieve at work. They can overachieve in career. They can overachieve at sports. They can do all this stuff. And, but when it comes to showing up with the feminine 
energy in front of them, all those wounding, all that wounding comes roaring in because it's the ultimate form of rejection for a guy. And so as I started to recognize that, I said, like, how can I move into um, guiding men, teaching men what it's like to be in their divine masculine, you know, unwavering presence? Like women, what they want most is presence. They want us to be there with them. That's it. And within, if we can be there with them without our unworthiness, without our not enough story, without our shame pulling us away and telling us stories that aren't true. And I have experienced this. I mean, this, this past year was a massive, massive shedding of this for me. Um, guys can be in that divine masculine and show up and actually hold the woman in front of them, make her feel loved, make her feel seen, make her feel erotic, make her feel pleasure, make her feel all the things that this, that these sacred unions provide um, men really have to get clear about their relationship to their pain because the pain will rip them out of the present moment. It's the only thing that rips men out of the present moment is either current pain or anticipation of pain. And so as men, it is what I do is I teach men how to get right with this pain that, that we carry from ejection, from, um, you know, throw, throw some dirt on it, like be a man, be a man about it, all this stuff that we carry with us. How do we get right with that and, and transmute it into love and to passion, into uh, space and capacity? Because that's what it's really about. Like if men feel like they have the capacity to hold, there's no anxiety. There's no story. It's just presence. It's pure, unwavering presence. And that's what, that's what creates the culture of relationships so that the feminine can be in her flow and in the love and in the energy of it all where the, men, the man is there with that conscious awareness of all of it. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. I love that. I, I, um, I just love your passion about it too. And you can tell that you really experienced it firsthand. Um, mm-hmm. and I love that you're speaking up for men in such a vulnerable way, but also like in such a strong way, because I do feel like in society lately, like men are really pushed to the side in a lot of areas. And, um, it is, it's do more, show up more. You're not doing enough. And we forget, Mm -hmm. um, the wounds and the things that have happened that they carry and it's, they're not allowed to talk about, or they don't have the safe places and they don't have these brotherhoods in the healing. Um, a lot of times it's, let's go to the bar and drink our sorrows away and let's all forget about it. And let's all go watch sports. And, uh, we love sports, but let's just, uh, basically numb out, you know, how can we get out of this? How can we not remember any of the pain or any of the things we're going through? They don't want to. Mm-hmm. They don't want to show weakness. They don't yes. want to come home and show weakness. They don't want to show that yes. they can't provide. Like there's just oh, so many things. So, so many levels. And there, there's a. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine here in Austin who's also who's like what kind of what I do on the feminine side. We've been friends for, for since I moved here, and she has this theory that she told me about how. Um, it's, it's a little bit of the shadow side of it, but women would much rather see their man shot off their ho- his horse than to fall off his horse. And that's because to fall off is weak, but to get shot off is chivalrous and, and that. And so, but the thing about it is, is that men would also rather get shot off their horse than fall off their horse because that's the vulnerable. The vulnerable thing is I fell off my horse. And then the, the real, the balancing or the, the sweet spot for it is how well in that relationship can a man fall off his horse and have that have the woman 
get help him get back on or help him stand up and dust himself off and say, okay, get back on your horse and not say, look, you stupid idiot. You fell off your horse. Like I can't trust you now. You're not safe to me. Um, you know, finding that balance uh, and that space is really like the, back to the beginning, like this understanding that we have of each other, like everyone's going to fall off their horse sometimes. Yeah. And we're going to get shot off our horse sometimes too. So what advice do you have for men who are hearing you talk about this for maybe the first time? And or women, I guess, too. Um, what would your advice be as to like this is striking a chord and it, they're hearing you and they want to make changes? Like where somewhere, where's a good place for somebody to start in making changes and recognizing? and The present moment. Yeah. Like if, if, someone, if someone says like if someone gets to the point where they're like, okay, something's got to change the best place to start is why does something have to change right now? Like what about this moment right now is showing me that something has to change because you, you, you can, if you have that, if you have the, the real knowing of the present moment, like a, a complete understanding of, okay, in my relationship, I keep hearing from my wife or my girlfriend, I'm not present. She can't feel me. She feels like I'm disconnected. Like I'm not there. And then my experience is like, I'm irritable. Uh, I'm anxious, you know, I, I'm isolating. So it's the same experience. It's just the woman's experience of it and the man's experience of it. So really diving into, okay, what's, that's what's happening right now. And then go take it a step back. You can say, um, what about like, what in those moments where I isolate or I disconnect or I, or I check out or I want to run away what's actually happening then? Like what led up to that? Was it the, you know, was it a bad day that I was having? Is there something else going on? Am I thinking in the back of my head about finances? Is it something at work that's taking over? And so you can kind of reverse engineer the present moment all the way back until you're, until you get to the, the root. And it could be 25 years old. It could be 33 years old. It could be 13 years old, but get clear with the present moment and then reverse engineer What's triggering you? What's what's led up to this moment where, okay, something's got to change? That's so good. So yeah. can you just, like, when did, when you were doing this personal training, like, and had this, like, epiphany, what, what were, what was going through your mind with this? How did you start bringing this into your practices then? This, uh, the, the present moment stuff? Yeah. Like just use like you obviously you understanding use, the masculine yes. energy, the way that you have become like, yeah. what was it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of falling on my face. <laughs> Honestly, like that's really Getting it. thrown like, off your horse. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of get, a lot of falling off my own horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, re really that's it. Like it, it's, it's like, it's honoring. It's this move towards what do I not know? So patterns repeat always. And I, I, I noticed in my life that there was, even though I, the, the, I'd say a big shift happened in 2019. So I was seven years clear of drugs and alcohol and a pattern that is very uncomfortable resurfaced. And I'm like, okay, I've been doing seven years of work here. Like this is not something that I really would like to have repeat again. And it really showed me, okay, what, what, do, there's something, okay, so I've been doing work for seven years of myself, gone through the steps of AA, who, who knows how many times, gone to therapy, hours and hours and hours, gone to, um, done meditation and journaling, all the things that they, they tell us to do. And yet there's something that I'm not seeing. There's something that I don't know 
about what's going on in my body and, and I need to find out what it is. And so that was really it. And that led me into um, a lot of nervous system work. It led me into a lot of somatic therapy. It led me into a lot of like essentially out of AA and out of therapy where it's a lot of talking and it's a lot of um, identity. Uh, AA is a lot of identity around being an alcoholic, um, which I have nothing against AA. It's just that wasn't serving me anymore because it kept me in this thing about I'm broken. So it kept me in repeating patterns. And so um, what I've learned along the way is that, um, so these things we talk about, these pains, the shame, this unworthiness, these stories are all edges for men. Some people call it, you, know, you can call them activations, you can call them triggers. It's essentially something that keeps us in prison. Um, and so as, as I, w- I got looking at this stuff, you know, it was a lot of going back and unearthing or looking like new stones in old places. So childhood or teenage years or adulthood or the addiction period. And even, you know, I looked at all that stuff and there was things underneath it that um, I had not looked at yet. Like I didn't, I, you know, I essentially, I had gotten to the point where I thought that healing from addiction was like, I am not that person anymore. I, that guy does not exist anymore. That was not that that served me, I guess, for six years. But when it came right down to it, I was still dealing with the shame of that. I was still dealing with the guilt of that. I was still dealing with I hadn't really understood why the addiction was happening. And so what it was was welcoming back in that part of me, these parts of me that I didn't want anything to do with. I'm good. I'm clear of that, like this really like rigid approach to it. And as I welcomed that back in, I understood how wounded that little boy was. And how much he needed um, a masculine presence. And, and when I say needed a masculine presence, my, my dad was there. Like there was no abandonment. There was nothing like that. But there was this uh, different masculine presence that was necessary for me to go back. And it was my, it was basically, it was my own masculine presence that that little boy needed because that little boy now had, it's that connection, that quantum connection. Because you rejected that part of you connection. for so long. Uh, yeah. And the only, the only person that really knows what that little boy was going through is me. Yeah. So my dad or a, a, a men's coach or a, a mentor or whatever doesn't actually know what that boy was experiencing, but I do. So you and needed so you to see yourself. I needed me to hold myself and see myself because I'm the only one that can go back and be like, I know what you're feeling. Yeah. I know what you're experiencing. And look, we get to, we get to walk out of that hospital room or we get to walk uh, um, out of that party that we weren't having fun at, whatever it is, whatever the event was and going back and loving on those parts of me, you know, loving on the part of me that was such a bad boyfriend during the addiction or such a bad son, uh, a bad brother, you know, all these broken relationships that I felt I carried so much shame and guilt around. And it involved a lot of disconnection from some people really close to me um, because th- that it was essentially keeping my hand in a very hot fire all the time and expecting not to get burned. And I had to, I had to c- spend a couple of years um, removed from some very, very close relationships. And then going back in, um, you know, I have to be very careful going back in about my energy because it's easy for me to slip back into that. And, but, and also no, now that I can see, like I've turned these stones over so I can see now it's, I'm not going in blind. I'm not going in and like, Oh God, I didn't see that trigger coming. You know, I, I know now going in where the blind spots are, where the, where the stones are, where, where the, like what conversations I can actually partake in and not come away feeling all screwed up and spin out, spun out. Um, and, and recognizing too, back to the masculinity thing that, you know, all the suicide stats and all the like 
uh, mental health stats that are just climbing like, skyrocketing yeah. for men. Yeah. Like seeing that. And then um, in 2018, uh, my sister passed away from alcoholism. And not that, and she's clearly not a man, not masculine. And I noticed that I knew that she was a deeply tortured and suffering human being, that she had the same thing that I had, the same, the same experience with alcohol and drugs that I had, except she kept silent because of shame and because of guilt and because of whatever reason she didn't want anybody to know. And because she kept silent, it got her. And I did not stay silent. Like I was actually going to rehabs and I was actually like, you know, I was ta- I, I would talk about my struggles and it wasn't a secret. And be- I think because of that, it, it's, it, it saved my life. Um, and I had, I did, I, I had a suicide attempt in 2009 that um, I survived obviously, <laughs> but at the same time, this silent suffering that I saw my sister go through is so it, men all the time, men are more so like that. She was, you know, it, it was a, it's a very masculine thing to suffer in silence. It's part of the, you know, not falling off the horse. And so, um, you know, having had a suicide attempt and having had all these trips to jail and all this stuff and this mental illness, depression, anxiety, all this addiction, you know, there, it doesn't have to get to that, I recognize. And so my, my mission became like, allow me to get to the men before they go down the road of ruining their relationship or ruining their own life or addiction where they're, you know, lost everything or suicidal because, as long as you, if you can open up and have real conversations, you can avoid a lot of that stuff. And that's what, you know, I, I've given men the space to do for the past six years. And I mean, it also seems to me that unless you are an addict or unless you have something like AA, that those are the only types of places to go where it seems more open to sit and talk about your issues and, and what's going on and, and get to those places. And, um, well, sorry, I just dropped something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's like, that's how you get to those places. And so it kind of makes you wonder like if, like you're saying, if you get to them before it gets to that point, you're giving them an open space, an open place, and it's becoming more socially acceptable. It's normal. It becomes more of a normalcy to meet with a group of guys and sit down and have real life talks about real life emotions and what is actually going on instead of trying to ignore everything else going around. Well, not even addiction. I mean, everybody has their vice, right? Like if you're not yeah. into But I'm drugs. saying like the addict, you know what I mean? Like you don't have a place for people who like love to shop or, you know, like, no, the, and that's what I was going up oh, of, just stating yeah. that like, it's becoming a normal thing for men to have groups and not go to the bar yeah. to have that deep conversation when you both have had too many drinks. Like now we're going to confide in each other because yeah. now it's a safe place yep. because we can open yeah. up finally, but yeah. it's becoming normal to have the personal trainer, to have the mentor, to sit and listen to these TikToks and like, oh yeah, I feel like that too. Like it's this whole new yeah. revolution. Yeah, it, it's it's actually, it is a revolution. And um, I'll say, and I honor both of you, like the feminine have led the way. You know, you guys, you, the feminine have been the ones to step out first and say like, something's got to change. And that becomes from, that comes from thousands of years 
of suppression and oppression and mistreatment and witch wounds and all the things because women finally said like we want better for ourselves and so women step out and do this work and even like on my instagram the amount of women that interact with me versus men is like 85 to 15 because women have been on this path and they're they're essentially you know calling for men to hey come meet us here like we want our men to meet us on this path and so men are really really starting to listen and to wake up and say it's not it's not that my that my girlfriend is nagging me it's that she she actually wants me to meet her where she's at and she wants me to show up better and and part of that is me getting over my own shit and sucking up my pride a little bit and saying i got some work to do and stepping onto that path and then yeah and so these like men are definitely um having deeper conversations, conscious conversations about feelings. And, and a lot of it is in, in safe places. Like for me, for me, it's like, you know, every conversation with my buddies, my brothers is like, we're talking about real stuff and it's so normal for me. But I, but I also have a group of friends from like 25 years ago that, that these conversations don't really happen. And it doesn't mean I love them any less or it doesn't mean they're any less important to me. It's just, I understand. I do know that I operate in quite a little bubble and like, Part of my purpose is like, how do I expand this bubble? How do I provide more men the space to come and have these conversations and, and get in touch with themselves? And, you know, like I get the, the wildest array of men that you've ever seen to come to me and be like, I'm, you know, one of the things is I'm like, men will come to me and be like, I'm ready to feel my pain. <laughs> like, okay, let's do it. Are you sure? Are you sure? You know, we have a conversation, but it's like these, like these random messages from these guys that you would never think they're just like looking, they're just craving it and like looking for somewhere like, please give me somewhere to go so I can like feel better because like this essentially epigenetics, like these generations of men, seven generations of men and families have been holding, holding their pain in, you know, holding their, their suffering in because for a long time there was no room for it with war and with hunting and gathering and like all that stuff, like literally not quite any room, but also there were things in place in those indigenous cultures to allow men to have these rites of passage and, and have this. So it wasn't such a thing, but you know, going through like world war one, world war two, Vietnam, all that stuff, men really got put into this place of like, there's no time for you. There's no time for your feelings, like be a soldier. And so now we're coming out of that. And this is why Gen X is one of the generations where it's, you know, it's walking in two worlds because Gen X has the, the parents that were raised on that wartime stuff, but also Gen X is now raising millennials and all the other ones that are on this, like on the more conscious side. So the Gen Xers are like the, the, the ones kind of walking in two worlds. And it's beautiful because we get to uh, initiate this new generation. And um, yeah, I think that's a I'll start rambling <laughs> no, here in a second. <laughs> no, I love it. No, I love it. You made such a good point with it, point with finding that that masculine crowd and whatever, because I feel like a lot of men they they confide in women, right? Then okay, I can't be vulnerable to this guy. So I that's how infidelity start. Like I don't want to let my wife yeah. know how I'm feeling because I don't want to seem weak to her. But I'm gonna go sit and form an emotional connection with this other woman to listen to me. Yep. A hundred percent. I've seen it so many times. And, and you know what, like there, I went to female therapist for a very long time because it felt safer and more comfortable. And then I recognized that, wow, okay, that's great. I mean, and again, nothing against those spaces. They're amazing. And if that's what that man needs and his soul needs in that moment, great. That's the healing you're going to get, but there's going to come a moment when you recognize that, 
as good as that is and as beneficial as that is, there's something else that happens when you get in front of either one other guy or a group of other guys and you bear your soul and you be witnessed in your mess and your pain and your ugly and the things that you hate. You say you say the thing that you hate about yourself in front of three, four, ten other men and then you and, the, and they don't look away. They don't say, oh, you're an idiot or like they don't judge you or ridicule for it. In that moment, you've healed years of, of, of wounding. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an, that just sounds crazy impactful. Just that, yeah. that moment of, like you said, not being ridiculed, not being rejected and being, because that's where it all starts vulnerable. for men. I mean, everybody, but they, you know, a lot like shame, the story of I'm not enough unworthiness. It, it starts when we're five, six, seven, 12, 13 years old, when we are, trying to get a basic need met. So basic needs are things like, you know, air, food, uh, connection, um, love, like those things. And when we set out to try and get those things met, those needs met, and we feel rejection or humiliation around that immediately, shame. That's where shame starts. So like my example, for me, it was breathing. You know, I had severe asthma as a kid, severe to the point where I was in the hospital for at least a month total every year. So probably twice in the spring, maybe once or twice in the winter or a week, a week at a time in the hospital. But also going, you know, having an asthma attack in front of the entire fourth grade class and the kids are looking at you like, like pretending they're having an asthma attack too, making fun of you because you can't breathe. You know, I'm, tr- I'm over here trying to get a breath and survive and I'm being made fun of for it. And so for me, that immediately was like, holy crap, I, I'm so ashamed of who I am. I'm broken. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like you guys. And, and so that created such distance, but other times it's, you know, it's, uh, it's rejection it's from women. It's rejection from friends. It's this connection piece, like whatever the piece of the basic human need that we're trying to meet and we get rejected or humiliated for it, that immediately there's a memory in our body now in our cells that we can forget about, but the body will remember that we're going to have to deal with at some point somatically later in life. That's amazing. It's so much to digest, but like, I'm just taking it all in. It's so interesting if I'm listening to you and I'm sitting here thinking like, it's so cool to just hear from a masculine man, just what you guys need and what it is. Because for me as a female looking at you guys, we, you know, you just, we don't, I don't see it. Those things don't come to my mind of like, Oh, but Mm -hmm. as you're saying, it's like, yes, yes, yes. That makes so much sense. And the only relationship we know with men or or the masculine energy would be, you know, with our fathers and with our partners and, um, and, or like siblings or, or friends. But a lot of times it gets, like you said, it can get messy when you get too much into that. And so, um, it's, I'm learning so much just as, first of all, for raising a son and, and yeah. what that looks like for him. Um, and second of all, you know, being somebody who has been single for a very long time and, you know, getting back into the dating scene of like, I've had these conversations with men of like, I've gone on a couple dates, it's going great. And I'm like, listen, I'm looking for a conscious relationship. Like, this mm-hmm. is what I'm looking for. I want um, somebody who is going to be growing and healing the same and, and, and put that first 
uh, the same way I'm going to, right? And that you can go in and, and do that. And that is usually when I start losing people. <laughs> so I've had like a very short little, you know, because it's really yeah. fun right away and it's exciting and yeah. you're learning about each other. And then it's like, I'm still very honest about it, but then it's like reality hits, right? Like she is, you know, yeah. and I'm not looking, it's not like I want to commit, like I'm not like, let's go get married right now. But it's like I am looking for this type of relationship to have a future with. This is what I'm looking for in my future partner. And so it's really, it's really, it's really really funny. It's really funny to like throw that filter on it and see how people respond. It's amazing because then I don't have to do the breaking. I mean, not that we're even really together, but it's kind of like, it just happens naturally because spirit's like, yep, you're right. That's not the right person. I'm like, bring me somebody better, you know, like let's, let's keep going back. And, um, but I, I will reference back to what you said there. I have done so much healing on myself personally, but there's only so much you can do until you put yourself in a place where you are vulnerable. And and there's definitely a difference between being vulnerable and being, um, I would say, uh, not like open, but uh, being... Why can't I think of the word? Uh, There's a difference between being open and vulnerable and being able to get to that place with another person again and and getting into that and letting somebody trigger those wounds in you and put yourself out there Mm -hmm. to be rejected, to be pushed away, to be in those places and to have to recognize that is hard. (laughs) So hard. And it's scary and it's like, ah, oh, but at the same point, it's, it's incredible to, to get to go into those places and, and really heal in areas that you can't do alone. Yeah. And I think like the other side of that is we want is like, so we're talking about like us coming in, being vulnerable and telling, letting someone know where we're at. The other side of that is how, how well can that person, man or woman, it's two way street, hold what we're telling them, hold how we're showing up. Because if that other person hasn't done the work, you're going to start to be vulnerable and their little child is going to be like, wait, but what about me? You know, and, and it's, it's a thing because that level of healing, that, that, that's the prep to get there is like this level of healing that, know, that you know you can withstand or be in someone else's storm with them and not get taken away and not make it about you and not um, drop them. And, or, you know, because a lot of times judgment or um, like, I've dated some coaches and it's like, it's easy to go to coaching, you know, it's easy to go coach your partner through it. And that's not, that's not it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's a, it's a very, very deep level of presence and holding and, and, you know, um, compassion and going there with that person. And that's the other side of it. So we want to talk, you know, we're going to come with all of us, all of us is welcome. And how well can that other person receive all of us and then vice versa. And that's where the real, I think that that's where the divinity of the divine union lives. So true. I've been married for a century at this point, and <laughs> we've known each other since grade school. And just, oh, wow. you know, you like on the other side, like you said, just like, okay, well, my husband was very brought up very old school, and he's the male and he's going to make the money and you're going to do this. And, and so we got to this point where I was like, well, I'm growing. And he's like, I don't, well, why would you want to grow? Like, it, you know, and oh, yeah. so it took him a while to really understand. And now as we're meeting each other in the middle going like, wow, this is the closest we've known each other our whole lives, but yet this is the closest we have ever been because we're finally both 
ready to grow and be at that point together and he's allowed to show weakness and he's allowed to talk Mm. about his feelings and yeah it's been crazy it's a crazy ride but yes we've been through the freaking storm together that's for sure yeah (laughs) he said you're growing wait you can't grow without me (laughs) (laughs) yeah why do you need to grow i've heard that so many times i like everything's so good why don't we just like hang out Uh, um, so I really want to get into the psychedelic yes. side. Yes. Can we talk about yes, that? Yes. How did you get your start Please, into psychedelics? It. And and how is that? I, I'm not going to speak for you, but there had to have been a contradiction in some place with coming out of addiction and then going into psychedelics because there's this idea of, you know, everything. I'll let you talk about it, but yeah. how was that? And how did you get into yeah. it? Yes. Um, this is juicy. Uh, so, I mean, I, I got into psychedelics when I was 18, 19, 20, college, like a lot of LSD, a lot of mushrooms. Um, later, there was, you know, back in the day when it was uh, ecstasy, now it's MDMA. Um, you know, so I've been kind of experimenting with that. And, and, and again, like back then, it was all about recreation. Like, let's go to a festival, let's go to a concert, let's go to out hike and let's get weird. See, I'm, let's see a lot of mushrooms and see what happens. <laughs> you know, it was great. A lot of really good times. And knowing what I know now, it was the beginning for me. Like it was my introduction and it, it provided mind mending, mind opening experiences to me that really, whether it was recreational or not, it still opened me up to whatever, what, what psychedelics can do. And that's this, these new perspectives and these new levels of connection and joy and neural pathways and, and the neuroplasticity and knowing all these things. And so, um, that being said, um, I took 15 years, 20 years off of, of psychedelics. Um, you know, at the end of my addiction, it was alcohol and cocaine were, were the ones that I was using the most of. And um, for, so for six years, I went into AA. I went to rehab and then AA and did like that whole, you know, the quote unquote sobriety path, the recovery path. And um, that's a conversation that um, I don't really even feel is relevant anymore for me is like, I'm not, I don't like, I'm not sober. I'm not recovered. I'm not like, it just, it's a conversation that I don't feel um, f- suits um, the, the, how do I say this? It suits the kind of the, the way I live my life. I just, I know that I, I mean, I haven't had a drink in 11 years and it's, I know that in that moment, 11 years ago, I made a decision that th- this with the way I was living cannot go on. And that looked like sobriety, like, recovery AA for six years. And then at about the six year mark, I started having that experience of these repeating patterns and this, you know, going in every morning into a meeting and saying, I'm Sam, I'm an alcoholic. It started to hurt almost. It started to feel like I was, you know, going backward. I wasn't getting closer to having a drink, but I was getting, I felt like I was like in this, it was keeping me stuck. Like a Because it was really a purgatory a little yeah. bit. Yeah. It's like you're... It's, because like really you, you, you always identify as an alcoholic the other side of that is like, okay, I'm broken, still broken. I'm still broken. Yeah. I'm Sam. I'm still broken. And so, and, and maybe some people don't have that experience. Um, I, I have really close friends that have been to a meeting every day for 20 years and they are some of my best friends and they have not had the experience that I had. My experience was at six years, I was ready to leave. I was ready to get out of AA and, and move on. And uh, part of that was the, um, I'd say the call or the interest in, in plant medicines. And mainly it was ayahuasca was the one that was on my radar. I was like, wow, I really need to do that. Um, 
you know, it didn't feel like ayahuasca doesn't exactly feel like I'm going to go get out and get crazy with my friends and, and go to a club in South beach on ayahuasca. Like that doesn't, doesn't sound like that's going to happen. <laughs> so, so there was a little bit of a, a buffer zone there, I guess you could say between like the medicines that I was interested in doing and the way I was interested in using them from the conversation of AA. And I was also very aware of this conversation about, um, am I going to like end up back in jail? Am I going to end up in rehab again? And so I, I spent probably the last two years of my time in AA having this conversation with myself and my, ther my therapist, not so much people in AA, but internally and with my therapist about, you know, I'm ha I, I just don't feel like that is really serving me anymore. And I, and I, I feel the calls over here. And so um, when I came, when I moved to Austin in 2019, I basically, that's when I stopped going to AA meetings. I, I, I made up at the time, like I, there was no meetings that fit my schedule, which was kind of true. But also I know that if, if I really wanted to go to a meeting, I could find a way to get there. I was just, I was ready. And so what I did then is I started microdosing uh, mushrooms and um, that led to uh, Wachuma, which is a, the San Pedro cactus, uh, which led to Bufo, which led me to ayahuasca, which now it, it's opened up so many experiences and avenues. I can't even, it, it would take hours to talk about. Um, but what it was is, and, and that first, like, so that was like 2020, I think when I started the microdosing and then um, that first like legit ceremony um, that I sat in at the end of 2020 with um, the, I did mushrooms and then I did Wachuma uh, a week, one weekend and then Wachuma the next weekend as part of a mastermind that I was in. And um, both of those ceremonies were very, very uncomfortable. Because I had thought that I had, you know, healed this addict part of me. Like, and when I said healed, I meant gotten rid of it, not real healing. Getting rid of things is not real healing. Overcoming and holding things, that's where the healing is. But I had, I had, I had just put that guy in the corner. I hadn't learned to love him or hold him or see him or anything. And in those two ceremonies, I was convinced both times I'm surely going to end up in jail in a month. I'm surely going to be doing cocaine again. I'm surely, and now I'm an addict again. I have to reset my, I have to go back to rehab. And, and I, I was having like this experience of like, I just fucked everything up. Um, and it was not so much that what was happening was, is that, that, that version of me that I had exiled was simply saying, why the fuck did you stop paying attention to me? Why did you, like, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, I was, you know, I was trying to survive. I was doing the best I could. Why are you so angry at me? Why do you hate me so much? And that kind of contradiction of these experiences of me feeling so far removed from that and also this, this version of me, this part of myself asking for love, I was, I was invited, strongly invited, encouraged to say, okay, welcome back. I love you. And it happened um, after a, breath, a three hour breathwork journey I did in Sedona. And um, I just tell my buddy the story about how I had... Uh, tapped into that version of me and I walked him out to the desert and I said, this is where we part ways and you have to go now. And this was right before this, these, these ceremonies. And my buddy said to me, he's like, that's, that's, why did you exile him? Why didn't, you know, th think about like welcoming him in as opposed to kicking him off into the desert by himself for eternity. And so that was those, that, 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 that this has started the process of me integrating all these wounded parts of me. And so as I've gone down this road to psychedelics, so, um, that same week was, uh, my first experience with Bufa, which is one of the medicines that I serve now. 
And uh, I remember I took a, took the the inhale and laid back on the sand on the side of the river in Sedona and looked up and uh, my first thought was, okay, so life will never be the same. And the things that I was seeing and feeling were um, just indescribable. But it was this this moment of like every everything on this planet is legitimately one thing. It's all consciousness. And it's all energy commingling with each other in the ways that we perceive it and the ways that we experience it. And about a month later, I, find, I, sat with like the, I sat with the full dose of Bufo. And that one was where I went fully into, the, into source and fully into the complete, they call it a threshold dose, a, a breakthrough dose. And the first thing I thought after that was, that was the healing that I needed every day since the day I was born. Because the day I was born, I immediately started struggling with breathing. Yeah, my umbilical cord was wrapped around my head. I had to have a C, it was, it had to be a C-section. Like there was things going on from like the get. And so I had been dealing with this, not dealing, I had been working through this, um, you know, kind of a complicated relationship with my body for 44 years at the time. And um, that moment when I smoked that, the Bufo that day, all of that just gone, just lifted. Yeah. And so I, I said to myself in that moment, or I, I didn't say to myself, but I thought to myself in that moment, like, okay, I've been working with these guys and these guys are like, we all deal with this level of like, whatever, shame, guilt, wounding. Um, I need to bring this medicine to these, these men that I work with. And, and now it's, it's, it's turned in now to, I just, it's men and women. Like I bring it to couples, I bring it to men, I bring it to groups, I bring it to wherever, but it was, you know, this, all that work I had done, and when I say work, like I've been doing this work since I was, I mean, I don't even, I don't know when it started, but I know like very early on there was things happening that I was doing this work, like as a kid, um, just working through on a, on a human level, the things that I was working through, the, the breathing, the allergies, the, the, I would choke on my food like five or six times when I was a kid, the Heimlich maneuver. So like this is spiritual work is, is being, is, is working through these human experiences and then um, I'd say for like the, from age thir- 23 to 38 was when I started to really kind of wake up and have these experiences where it was like Buddhism and Hinduism and spirituality and all this. And up until that point, so uh, 23 to 38 plus four or five more years of AA, um, all that work was a great start. But this work, when I introduced psychedelics, literally exponential hockey stick level uh, growth and expansion of consciousness and leading me to living in Mexico for a year. Lead, that led me to being in Peru for three weeks, sitting with ayahuasca there. And that sitting with ayahuasca there unlocks so many things inside of me, so many memories. And so that's where I learned that I had a suicide attempt in 2009. I didn't know it was a suicide attempt. I thought I had jumped off the second story of a bar and landed on the pavement 35 feet. And I, I, just, I don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, I woke up in the hospital the next morning and that was the only thing I remembered. And so ayahuasca said, well, that was like that, your shame, the, the amount of shame that you carry led you to saying, I am done in that moment and jumping off that balcony. So all these things becoming psychedelics has allowed all these things to become unlocked. And what it's also done is it's really hard, really, really hard to sit in these psychedelic ceremonies and, and, and um, sit with what comes up and be willing to sit with what comes up. And so within that experience is a massive level of self-trust. That if you can go in there and face off with those demons and those dragons, you can pretty much face off with life 
and it makes it just it's it's made life so just wonderful and beautiful and um there's a level of surrender that i've never experienced to the journey the path the to source to like to the work to love capital l love um these things and um the last time i sat with ayahuasca so i got diagnosed with cancer on november 1st of last year and um twice by two doctors and they were like you know we'll get a biopsy done we'll figure out what the chemo looks like and i'm in my head i'm like no that's not how this is gonna go and so um i you know again all this work um and i went down i went down to costa rica to serve bufo and also to sit with ayahuasca at the same retreat and the last night of ayahuasca um i was you know I, i just said something's something's really telling me to like go somewhere that i've never gone before and so I drank the most ayahuasca I ever drank. It was four cups of it, which is a lot. And the last three hours of that night were the absolute most horrible three hours that I've ever experienced. Um, I was literally like, so all this shame that I talk about, all this guilt, all this um, just hating myself, essentially. I was literally spent three, maybe three and a half, four hours with every version of myself that represented something there. And yeah. And by the end of it, and to the point where at the end, I, I was like, you know, these waves of shame and guilt and these versions of me would come over me. And I'd be like, for like, you know, 30 or 45 minutes in this like torturous experience. And then all of a sudden, like, everything opens up and there's Can God. Can I ask you like, a question? In that 30 to 45 yeah. minutes, what does that feel like for you in that time? Does it feel longer? Does it feel shorter? Is just time does not exist yeah, and in the, that the moment? Yeah, the only reason I know it 30, 45 minutes is I know the grand scale of things and like that's a it's a guesstimate, but it what it feels like is unrelenting noise, voices, physical pain, moving around, like just unrelenting torturous experience of what is what I know is a purge. So it's energy leaving my body. It's me looking at something that has never been looked at and the the body is saying, Okay, so it's a lot of rule like rolling around, um, um like yawning, like any kind of purge you can think of. Um, but it's just 45, like it's, it's a, however long hour, it could be longer. Some people it's the whole night is like that, but I would have these waves come in these like, over that period. It was like three or four or five waves of this experience. And to the point, like the last one came and I was like, God damn it. Like, when is this going to end? Yeah. And in that moment I said, God damn it. And all of a sudden something came to me and said, no, no, no. It's God, thank you. Oh, it's, and so I started. Yeah, <laughs> so I started singing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and so I started saying that, and that's when everything stopped. That's when everything was like, okay, we're done. We did it. And so that, and so I, I went home and I got the biopsy done, and the cancer was gone. That's yeah. so beautiful. So, it, it, like, I had and that, that cancer was the shame that I was carrying in my body. Yeah. And all that guilt and all that resistance, all that, God damn it, all that yeah. anger. Just And as soon as I switched to God, thank to you. Gratitude. And just every, every gratitude and just like surrender. Yeah. I was like, it's all, okay, we're done. Oh, it's like you're where in your own personal hell of just literally what, and, and it's no matter how much you do on your own, no matter what you read, no matter how much meditating you do, 
it is so hard to go to those parts because your body will fight you on it the whole way. And so to be able to surrender into something like that, and it's, it's like jumping off a cliff and saying like, let's do it. And you're not sure if you're going to hit some birds and what's going to happen on the way down, (laughs) or if you're even going to land or where you're going, but you're just doing it. I mean, there's a whole fear, but then there's also a release of like just going and doing that. And, um, I, I could definitely see how those types of medicines really help you just stay in it and help your body stay in it and, and sit with yourself and, and not have that fight. And I, as a parent, I think one of the hardest parts of healing for me is that I don't get to do it on my time and when my body and when my mind is in it, right? Or when your emotions Mm. are there, you have to shove it to the side because you still have to go mom or like there's times where I've had shame or anger or things come up and everything in me wants to sit in that, especially when you know how, how much it benefits, but I can't because my daughter needs dinner right now and to sit in and cry or feel it is just not on the table. And so it almost hurts to have to like, I have to set you aside and I got to come back to you. And then when you come back to it, your body's like, nope, we already know what's going to happen there. Like, yeah, let's just avoid it now. Like what else can we do? And so Mm -hmm. I love the idea and, and not the idea, just all of this, because that feels attainable to go and leave and, and to do a retreat like that and to be able to get away from outside of just your responsibilities and what you're doing and being able to just go and be fully and wholly with yourself. And how do you even get there is my question. Like as some, like you talk about like your asthma and stuff, like what was your mind going through when you were going to smoke that and just sit there in this mastermind and just being with other people? Like, how do you know that that's like a safe place? How, like somebody, You you feel it. Okay. Yeah, you know. Can um, you tell I'm an and, overthinker? <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, like, he has, she would have been like, what if I have an asthma attack? That's what's what going I, on? I yeah. know. That's why I'm like, he has asthma. Yeah. Like, I'm such a mom. No. Like, <laughs> well, asthma, yeah. Asthma is actually one of the things that's been healed through this process too. Like, I don't, I have an asthma attack and I, I don't remember the last time. So like all these things. The, the real thing is, is like, this is why the human work is so important. Because yes, if you come in and you're like, oh, I just heard about psychedelics. I want to do all of them. And you come in and it's going to be really reckless. And like I get people, people come to me all the time with that exact question. Like, how do you know? How do I know this is right? Like <laughs> start with ayahuasca or mushrooms. What do I start with? I'm like. <laughs> Slow your roll. Slow down for a second. Like it doesn't matter where you start. It just matter like which one is, the, which one are we talking about right now? And it could be any of them. And so it really is like it, it's this part. This is part of the self trust thing. Is that the ego is going to want to get in the way? So the ego hates psychedelics because the ego knows psychedelics are actually going to expand the human into the the best version of ourselves. But to the ego, the smallest, most survival based version is best. But psychedelics will move us away from that and expand us so that it's it's actually once the ego learns, oh okay, this is good. Then it's okay. But leading up. I see people that'll book ceremonies or, or retreats with me. And then like the week before they've been booked for two months, the week before they start getting migraine headaches or like, yeah. Or they start to have Panic attacks. You know, their asthma kicks on or like they get a, a head get really cold. Bad. Yeah. Because their ego is literally trying to sabotage their, their growth. Yeah. Because to the, to, to the ego growth is the fear. It's the scariest fear. thing ever. Yeah. And so I'm, I just tell people, I'm like, 
you're coming anyways. Like this is not this is not, not a reason to not to come. Yeah. And when you're in, um, when you're in that place, like, is there a safe per- like? Have you seen people have complete panic attack? Like, you're all in this kind of together, right? Can you explain the process of like this retreat? Can you- she's, having, <laughs> she's having a panic attack right now. Yeah, I can feel it. <laughs> I mean, I can explain it. I can explain it, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna caveat this. I'm gonna say this before I before I go into this. I will tell you my experience of it. Um, these like people come to me all the time, like, what should I expect when I smoke Bufo? I'm like, I honestly, I don't know. I know that whatever happens, I can hold this for you. I can hold you and you are safe with me. That's what I know. So when I tell you my experience, I just want you and the listeners to know that this is my experience and that you, Samantha, you, Allie, whoever's listening is not guaranteed this experience or anything close to it. They're, they're going to have whatever the experiences that they ha- they get. And when that could be going to Peru, it could be sitting in, Minnesota or LA. It doesn't matter. Um, going down to Peru, I knew as soon as ayahuasca came onto my radar. Um, so ayahuasca speaks to you. I, like when you're feeling the call to ayahuasca, she'll start guiding you and saying like, this is, this is what you're supposed to do. And then it's, it's, this is where the trust comes in. It's like, okay, how, how do I trust myself to listen? How do I trust myself to make decisions here? And I knew right away the first time I was going to do ayahuasca was going to be uh, by myself. I mean, not by myself, like all alone, but with nobody that I knew I was going to, it was going to be a solo mission and it was going to have to, I was going to have to go to the Amazon rainforest to do it. And I had opportunities to do ayahuasca before that. And I said no every time because it didn't align with what I knew to be true, which was that I need to go alone and I need to go to the Amazon rainforest. And so I waited years, a couple of years, and I had the opportunity to go down there and I, I did my research. Um, I, I wouldn't, too much research in this kind of stuff can get a little hairy because you can start picking up energetic experiences. You can say, oh, that person had a terrible experience. I don't want that. That person had a great experience. I want that one. And the truth is you're going to be somewhere in the middle. And so I just, I learned along the way to trust my intuition and trust that like I'm stepping onto this path and I can say no at any point and I can say yes at any point. And what I'm going to get in those experiences, you learn very quickly that what you, you, with medicines like this, you always get what you need, not necessarily what you want. And when you trust that there's no such thing as a bad trip, it's just a, a bad trip is, is an unmet expectation. And if you have expectations, you're going to uh, get let down. So I work with everybody that I work with. I, I, we have this conversation almost daily. Like, <clears throat> they're like, I expect, and I'm like, stop, stop, stop right there. Stop using the word expect. Like we're getting into intentions here. Like this is all about, this is about a <clears throat> very open-ended intention not an expectation. Because if you say, okay, yeah, um, my dad left when I was seven and I have this abandonment wound about my dad. I want, I want to heal that. Great. But like, don't say to the medicine, like heal my abandonment, heal my, my masculine abandonment wound. That's not going to happen. But what you can say, show me what I don't know about that wound so that I can go forth and heal it myself. And that's what, that's what this, that when you go in with that, it really does bring in safety because then you're you're saying, I just, I'm, I'm willing, I'm ready to know what I don't know. I'm ready to trust myself with new information and new behaviors so that I can move forward. And the only way I'm going to find those is by getting myself into an outside of my human experience state, because as a human, I can't see anything other than what I know, like what I've read, what I've experienced. But with psychedelics, I can go beyond the veil and see what, what do I not know about that situation when I was eight years old? What, like the suicide, like what, what do I not know about that? 
Oh, I didn't know it was a suicide attempt. Great. Now I do. So now I get to integrate that, how deeply that shame runs. And so these medicines, when you, when you have the right intentions and the right preparation and you have the right guide and the right shaman and the right facilitator and you do the proper integration are so powerful and beneficial and the safest places that you can ever have. They are the safest places that you can go to experience this level of expansion. Can I ask you a question about what is it like post-ceremony with the integration process as the emotions and as your body and everything starts to integrate together? Um, what does it feel like? Is it different for everybody? Is it, I mean, yeah. is, do you expect to be tired? I mean, like, you know, you get what I'm asking. So, yeah. Um, it's a, it's all of it. All of it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's very individual and um, there's, there's, Within that, so like if it's Bufo, for example, you're not going to feel very tired. You're going to feel very alive afterwards because it's 20 minutes and it's super expansive and there's not a lot of like, it's not a very uh, physical toll. So like ayahuasca is eight or nine hours that you're in the medicine overnight. Mushrooms is usually eight or nine, six, eight, nine hours that you're in it. Um, all the other ones are, aboga is like 24 hours that you're in the medicine. Peyote is another 12 hours. And so those ones that are the longer ceremonies tend to have a more of a physical kind of effect and you'll be, you'll be physically tired for the next couple of days. Um, emotionally, you may feel just completely on fire. Emotionally, you could feel very, very disoriented. Um, it really depends. And this is why integration is so, this is why integration, this is why having somebody to guide you on integration is so important because you're going to have, you're going to be experiencing no matter what it is, you're going to be experiencing yourself and your life on a whole new level. Like things are going to literally colors are going to look different. People, you're going to hear people differently. You're going to feel people differently. You're going to feel yourself differently. And so what I do, there, what I, there's three kind of distinct phases and not distinct, but there's three general phases of uh, integration process. And the first one is the witnessing phase. So the thing that I see a lot of people is, is they like, they, they do a they psychedelic ceremony. And they're like, Oh my God, I got to make all these changes, all these things I know now. And my thing is, wait a second, like, just witness, just write it down, put it in your journal. Like, I want to make this change and wait, because there's, you have to let yourself recalibrate and let the experience come down and yourself come up and where you meet, that's going to be your new baseline because the meta, the experience will wear down, wear off and, and you will come up and you'll balance out and recalibrate and meet that, that kind of level f- playing field. Um, and that's where you get to land. And then once the, and that's the witnessing recalibration phase, once that happens, then you get to go back, you get to say like, okay, these are all the things I've witnessed. These are all the changes I want to make. I can see clearly now because I don't, I'm not operating from fear. I'm not operating from anxiety. I'm not operating from insecurities. I finally have a clear vessel and a clear vision. Now I get into the alignment phase. Whereas like, what do I feel? What do I want to align myself with um, going forward? So who do I want to be and what life do I desire to live? And then from there, once you get clearly aligned with all that, then that becomes the embodiment. And so this usually is like a three to six month process, but the last phase would be the embodiment. So great. So you say you want to go and be um, a coach. What, it, what not, it's not about wanting to be a coach. It's about who do you get to be so that you can show up and be a coach? Who do you get to be so that you can drive a Lamborghini? Who do you get to be so that you can live on the beach in Miami? Like, it's not about this, like, this kind of disconnection from what, who you are or what you want and what, and what, who you want to be or what you want to have. 
It is who do I, how, do, how embodied do I have to be? What kind of embodiment do I have to have to uh, hold those things in my life? And that's the last phase of the inspiration is the embodiment. So it's no longer about like making changes or realigning or calibrating. It is simply a matter of this is who I am now and this is who I'm going to be in the world. So within that, there's the individual experience, but that's the general trajectory that I see. This is so cool. It is very cool. It's so <laughs> I have so many We're just questions. over here like to just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I just want to know like, like service members, like veterans, just I, you hear so many things about them, especially needing, have you dealt with that personally at all? Of, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there is def I have friends that are ex-military that are in this work as well, that, um, again, they, they kind of gravitate towards each other. Um, and so I have, I have served a couple ex-military. I've done some retreats with some ex-military. My buddy here in Austin, who is ex-military, he, um, he's the same medicine man just like me, and he, we do a men's retreat together. Um, and he attracts some of the, the ex-military guys, and you know, the, I tend to attract some people that have been through the addiction got uh, part of life. And so the gym bros. it really is. What's that? Sit in the gym bros. <laughs> I don't get a ton oh. of gym bros. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, like it's funny living here in Austin. It's like, it's, it's psychedelic gym bros is like a thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's really, um, I'm open to serving whoever needs to be served. You know, my, my cousin, for example, my cousin, um, he's one of the leaders and he sits on the board at maps and he's one of the leaders. He was one of the spearheads for this move, this new renaissance of psychedelics back in the nineties when he started using MDMA to help uh, veterans with PTSD. And so, um, you know, it, it's a, the mark that, that, um, market or that those, those, those men and women, are so in need of this because it does so much to relieve them of everything that they brought back with them. Um, you know, like you just hear, you hear miraculous stories about it all the time. PTSD is so complex. Um, <laughs> it's uh, PTSD. Mine is obviously nothing like uh, veterans, but it was really, really hard to understand. Um, I didn't, for the longest time I was like, I don't have PTSD. There's no way. Yeah. You know, like it just, you just didn't think about it because I related it towards other things. But um, when it came time to address the PTSD, I sat there going, I don't know what to do. Where do you even start? What do you, you just tell your body like, hey, you can't react that way when you see a rope hanging, you know, like just don't do that. Yeah. Like that doesn't happen. You just disassociate. Not... You sit there and you're like, oh, okay. Like I can't function now. And it, and then yeah. people are like, what's wrong? You're going, I don't, I can't explain it. I don't, I can't talk. I don't know what to tell you. And, mm -hmm. you know, so PTSD became very confusing and complex and uh, created a lot of fear. It creates a lot more fear as you have those, yeah. those things. And so um, it's really cool to hear of different options out there because there's not very many. And it's like therapy, like talking about it. Like, I don't want to talk about it because there's a fear that if I talk about it, it's going to it's going to happen or, you know, just yeah. those types of things. And, and it's, it can create a lot more fear in some of them too, instead of really. Yeah. I mean, it, this, the, the body keeps the score. Yeah. That book, that, that's, book. Book. that's, that's I mean, that's everything. Book. Like that's where it's, that's where the healing, the healing is in the body. Like we want to make, like, that's why therapy is great, but it's a very heady experience. It's very talky. I'm thinking, I'm, you know, running it through my head, my thought process. It's, you know, which is great. 
it does a lot and it's very limited because the real the real work is from the neck down if you're if, you're, if you can like this is why affirmations all the times like like don't work because you can yell affirmations at yourself in a mirror all you want but if your body has not let go of whatever it is that you're trying to affirm over you're not going to get anywhere this has been so amazing and like eye-opening yes. in so many ways like I I can't thank you enough for coming on yes, and sharing just like your wealth of knowledge and your knowledge comes from so much experience in life and um, just what it takes to be so open and vulnerable about everything you have been through and chosen which direction to go and, you mm-hmm. know, just the roller coaster you've been on and, um, you know, what do they, they say? It's nice to have a roller coaster buddy. And, uh, you know, somebody to go through the, go through the waves with. And, um, I feel like you just are like that in general with everybody you meet and you're just amazing soul and spirit. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's been such a great, it's been an honor to be on the show. Thank you so much for reaching out and asking me and thank you both for, um, creating the space. You know, I'm firm believer that this doesn't happen if all three of our souls had not decided this was going to happen lifetimes ago. And so you guys agreed to come together and create this space. And thank you so much for that because um, the space is an amazing, amazing frequency. And super fun. I love that. So Sam Gibbs Morris, where can our listeners find you? I know you have a website and uh, social media Uh, handles. So can you share those with them? And go into your story too with like how does somebody work with you? Like what does it look like? Um, So working with me, uh, I'll start there. Thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, working with me, I do I do one-on-one coaching, which is four months. It's a really, really deep dive. And we get into the psychedelics. We get into uh, all the CPSD, things we talked about, the somatic therapies. I have a special process, a somatic, a somatic, entangling, a somatic detangling process that I take guys through. Um, that's one-on-one coaching. It's four months long. It's a super deep dive. Like we basically become best friends. We talk all the time. Um, and then with... Uh, Outside of that, we can do, I do private ceremonies. So either Bufo or mushrooms, um, those are one-off ceremonies, or, or I do a private four-day retreat where we do, uh, this is a deep dive where we do breath work, we do Bufo, and then we do mushrooms, and then we have a full day of integration practices. And then I coach you for uh, uh, three months after that uh, for the integration. Um, I also will do, we'll, I'll be doing three, ret- uh, four retreats next year. Um, a couple of my own and then a couple with some buddies of mine. Um, so th- those are, look out for those. And then, yeah, that's, uh, that's how you can work with me. Um, where you can find me is it's all the same across all social media. It's Sam Gibbs Morris. So at Sam Gibbs Morris on all social media. And the website is the same, uh, Sam Gibbs Morris.com. That's G I B B S. Love it. Yes. This has been so mm. fun. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, is there any, do you have like a little, I don't know, slogan or anything you like to leave our listeners with like little something to. Yeah. I'm going to give you two. Send them off with. Okay. Yeah. Two. One is, uh, one is what one was my go-to for a very, very long time. And it, it was really what allowed me to really move forward in my life was allow yourself to be a beginner in all things all the time. Um, I was always trying to get to the finish line from day one in careers and relationships. And and it wasn't until I started allowing myself to be a beginner that things actually started to happen. The second one and the one that I love now, the one that I've been using for a while is um, 
offer the journey fully to love. That's good. And, and everything will be good. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to the Twisted Sisters podcast. We love you. Have a great one. Thank you for listening to the Twisted Sisters podcast. We'll now leave you with a little bit of wisdom from Allie and Samantha. Imperfection is beauty. Madness is genius. And it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. Twisted Twisted sisters. sisters. We're all a little twisted.